for the week of September 20th, 2013. This is the Energy Gang podcast from Green Tech Media. Welcome to the show. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media in Washington, D.C. The rest of the gang is with me this week, as always. Catherine Hamilton of 38 North Solutions joins us also in Washington, D.C. Catherine, what's the latest in your world? Well, it's been an absolutely gorgeous fall week uh, juxtaposed with a, an awful mass shooting at this, you know, in this neighborhood. Yeah, and your offices are kind of close to the Navy Yard, aren't they? Well, yeah, my husband and I have to drive in by that area to get to our offices. Yeah. And Jigger Shaw is with us, author of the upcoming book, Creating Climate Wealth. Uh, he's in Seattle today. Jigger, what are you up to this week? I had a bunch of conferences this week, and I have to say that, you know, with all of the bad news coming out of D.C., there's some great news coming out of Atlanta, Georgia, and Seattle, and some of the places. Just a lot of positive energy on clean energy. In terms of what? Well, you know, Georgia just got this 525 megawatt mandate, and the conference was really around how we implement it and some of the, you know, fights around how much is going to be utility scale, how much is distributed generation. And I mean, all around the room, though, there's a lot of climate wealth coming together, and um, folks really believe that this is an area where they can make money in Georgia. Absolutely. And you've got that book coming up, Creating Climate Wealth, and we'll talk about that when that is ready to go. Um, and today, guys, on the show, we have a plan. I mean, not that we don't have a plan when we actually record the show, but we have an actual energy plan to talk about. With us to help us flesh out that plan is our guest, Sonia Agarwal. Sonia is the Director of Strategy at the Energy Innovation out in San Francisco. She's one of 150 experts who help prepare uh, and edit a comprehensive new report on the future of the electricity system called America's Power Plan. And we're going to talk about that today. Sonia, welcome to the show. Great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. And we're going to speak with you about um, how to get some real strategic planning in the electricity sector, where, as we've talked about over and over on this show, renewables and efficiency are having the greatest impact today. Um, and then... In the second part of the show, we're going to look at the forces driving that impact on the electricity sector. The Department of Energy is out with a short but sweet report highlighting the deployment trends and stunning cost reductions in wind, solar PV, LED lighting, and electric vehicles. And we'll look at the forces driving those changes. And finally, after companies like Google and Microsoft failed to get traction in home energy management, companies are finally starting to find solutions that homeowners want. Are we on the brink of a surge in the sector? And to round out the show, we'll tell you something you may not know. All right, on to our first topic. It's no secret that we are terrible at energy planning in this country. Uh, everything is done in small pieces, and these days almost all ideas turn into a partisan battle. I mean, to be fair, we have a massive country that is very regional, and it's not as simple as waving a wand and creating some broad plan the way that we all want it. But we are on the verge of some pretty radical changes, particularly in the electricity sector, and we need to start thinking more strategically about how we embrace those on a regional level. Which brings us to this report, America's Power Plan, a series of reports, if you will, a fantastic series written and edited by over 150 experts in the field. Uh, in fact, Jigger Shah was one of the peer reviewers. And our guest, Sonia Agarwal, is one of the authors who worked on the report. So what's in it? Um, Sonia... I've seen a lot of reports come out over the years about how we need a plan for the oncoming surge of renewables and distributed generation. 
And we may lack an energy plan in this country, but we certainly don't lack plans from organizations that lament that we don't have a plan. So what makes this different, do you think? Well, this is usually, I think, one of the first comprehensive looks at the changes that we need to make in vertically integrated, regulated monopoly utility regions, as well as, you know, more competitive wholesale market-driven regions. So we really try to be comprehensive there and, and look at the way that policies and market designs can catch up with the technology that we all know we need. You know, the, the one thing that I noticed, Sonia, in this report was um, I was a big um, fan and reader of the European Climate Foundation's report that came out a couple of years ago that was done by McKinsey and RWE around how a high mm-hmm. penetration renewables um, future would be actually the same cost as today. But one of the huge criticisms that I had for them in their report was that they really didn't talk about distributed generation at all in their report. Their report was fully based on the supergrid. And yours, I think, you know, learns from that and takes it to the next level. I, you know, wonder whether that was a conscious choice on your part. Yeah, I mean, of course. And I think we have a problem because um, there's a systemic bias, I think, against distributed energy resources in uh, the work that comes out that's sort of based on technical modeling because it's so difficult to actually see into the distribution grid and and look at the effects of uh, distributed energy resources on the grid as a whole from a modeling perspective. So I think that leads us in a lot of cases to come to conclusions that may not actually be matching reality. Um, you know, we know that distributed energy resources are taking off so fast. You know, demand responses happening in, in PJM on a scale that I don't think anyone really predicted. And, uh, you know, then we have efficiency. We have BG that's just blowing up, you know. I mean, you can buy solar panels at Home Depot at this point. I mean, it's, it's unstoppable. So, yes. I mean, it was definitely a deliberate choice to include, um, we have two papers, actually, one on distributed generation specifically, and then one on distributed energy resources and grid integration a little bit more broadly. Yeah, what I thought was really interesting is that, you know, you have this construct that's been in place forever. You have regulators that are there who understand that construct, utilities that understand that. They've all been working under these same rules. And the report doesn't say, let's just break it all down. You actually use terminology. You use and even references to methodology that sounds familiar. It's just bringing in new value streams. It's internalizing what we would consider externalities and trying to, you know, bring some extra value based on what those technologies are. And I think that is going to be so powerful and effective because if you use the familiar to these folks, I think they're going to be much more likely to change. So Sonia, just asking you maybe a slightly tougher question here. Um, the when you think about the the grid and the utilities, it really is a political process, right? I mean, these are monopolies that were granted by the public, and it is a public political process. I mean, and the best example of that that I can tell is the nuclear power plants that that Georgia Power are building in Atlanta, where you know, they basically didn't get the answer they wanted out of the Public Service Commission, said, screw you, we're going to go to the state legislature and force this, while at the same time, they're making energy efficiency and renewable energy meet cost targets and all sorts of other 
you know, important sounding words in Georgia. So, so I mean, how do you square the circle? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, in this country, we have made a pact between um, regulators and utilities that, you know, they would deliver these energy services for us, or in fact, it was more and more electrons when this pact was originally formed. And that's sort of been the regulator-utility relationship. Um, That said, um, of course, you know, the mandate that regulators have is to implement policy created by, you know, state legislatures, governors, um, or, you know, even national policy sometimes. So that's much less common. Um, In that sense, it is definitely politically driven. um, But I think what we try and do with this plan is give regulators and utilities and market operators some of the tools that, um, that we know they'll need um, in order to uh, embrace these new technologies whose costs have come down so much. Uh, and then we sort of leave the political side of things um, a little bit out um, because I think, you know, in a lot of cases, the, this transformation is really inevitable at this point just because the costs have come down so much. I mean, wind is the cheapest resource in a lot of places in the Midwest and Great Plains. And, you know, Solar, you know, Edison Electric Institute, which represents the investor-owned utilities, says that 16% of Americans today, if they put PV on their roof, would see a cost saving. So I don't think this is something that's going to be stopped by policy makers. Um, and what we're trying to do here is give regulators and utilities tools to, to sort of help them through this transition. Yeah, this is one of my favorite quotes from the report, which points out how ridiculously complicated this is. And you write, it turns out that building a competitive market is devilishly difficult for a commodity that cannot be easily stored, flows to the nearest load regardless of contract intent, runs along monopoly distribution wires, is a prerequisite for all economic activity and requires real-time coordination across hundreds of power plants and thousands of substations. So just taking this out of the political context, I mean, this is just such an extraordinarily difficult uh, or complex, I should say, technical challenge as well when we look at restructuring markets, when we look at what it means for who owns and manages uh, the assets on the grid and the distribution system. And I think that we can't fool ourselves uh, when we talk about how important this is and how extraordinarily complex it is. It's really a fantastic report. I highly recommend people check it out. It very, very clearly synthesizes a lot of the issues that we're facing right now in the power sector and outlines a slew of uh, decisions and actions that we can take right now. This is not like a lot of reports out there that model 100% renewable energy and provide some theoretical analysis. I mean, this is stuff that can happen on the ground today. So a great report. Uh, Sonia Agarwal, the Director of Strategy at the Energy and Environmental Firm Energy Innovation. Uh, Thanks very much for joining us. I appreciate you uh, coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Sonia. All right. So I do like this report, but I'm always skeptical of getting this in front of regulators and creating an action plan around it. So it's one of the better reports that I have read. Uh, I'm just concerned about what comes next. What do you guys think? 
Well, I, you know, I certainly have seen great reports like this, but when you think about what happened in electricity deregulation and other efforts where major changes were made, the power sector, you know, you need a minimum of five million dollars. You need key influencers at the table. You need monthly meetings for three years. Um, there needs to be an apparatus here that really drives home all of their points into regulation, into education, into law, and um, and I just don't you know, know whether they have the resources to do that yet. Well, I'm hopeful because she does use terminology and, and, uh, constructs that I think that state regulators would really understand. And if they can internalize it coming from them, it's going to, instead of having them be in opposition, I think that's going to be really helpful. So rather than having it be some really high level, convoluted, very philosophical paper. This is something that's really practical that I think that a regulator could take it and go, hey, this is really interesting. Let me see if I can try to help solve this because this is something I can get my head around. Do you think that they give a damn? What is your sense? We always highlight some key regulators who are progressive on these issues and utility executives who make forward-thinking statements and look, look progressively at these issues. But is this a cultural change that's actually happening? Do you think the regulators would actually look at this and say, oh, yeah, let's try this out? Or are they still stuck in the past? No, I think some of them would. If you go to, I just was at Nehruk in Denver this summer, and they're not all old or anything. And, And also they're sort of, the average tenure has been about three years. So they're, they also don't have a huge amount of experience. So I think they're, they're sort of ripe for changing. Yeah, but you look at Nehruk's agenda and they have panel discussions devoted to questioning the science of climate change. You look at that uh, culturally ingrained skepticism of uh, environmental issues and renewable energy issues. And you have to wonder, does a report like this, which advocates structuring markets around environmental design, will that have an impact? Well, I think you have to you have to note that the way these political structures work is that you actually have to have enough power from our side coming in. Like you see what happened in Georgia. The reason why Georgia Power has had to eat all of these things is because they messed up so badly with that nuclear plant and pissed off the regulators so much that AARP, the Green Tea Party down there, the Enviros, etc., basically worked together to harness their power to actually force Georgia Power to do these changes. And that's true in North Carolina and other places around the country. There is no enlightened leadership that I've seen across the country on PUC regulators. This is a power struggle between the incumbents and the new entrants. Yeah, you definitely have to do a grassroots and inter- try to internalize it. Oh, a very local game indeed. So let's go on to our second topic. This one is very closely related. For yet another reason um, why it seems like we talk about disruption every week on this show, one need only look at the Department of Energy's new report on the declining cost of clean energy technologies. Um, So some good facts from the report. The cost of wind electricity has dropped 90% since the 1980s. A solar module costs 1% of what it did 35 years ago. LED lighting has increased 50-fold since 2009 in the U.S., and the cost of an EV battery has declined 50% since 2009. So, has the future arrived? Um, Catherine, what do you see when you look at these figures? What did you think of this DOE report? It, you know, it's obvious that the DOE kind of put this out to defend the investments it's made over the years, but it's a, it's a really fascinating report. 
Yeah, and the, I thought it was awesome because it did not talk about the one thing that I think has really enabled the these technologies to become cheaper, which is policy. But DOE always gets in trouble when they talk about that, and they're always getting blamed for policy issues. But but the state RPSs, renewable energy credits, tax incentives, all of those have contributed to the results that are in this report. But I thought it was really great that they that they steered clear of talking about that. This naturally draws me to the debate around what's better, incentives that promote deployment of technologies or research and development. And anyone who follows uh, the Twitterati, the energy Twitterati, sees these debates happening all the time between uh, a lot of environmental groups and, and energy folks and you know a lot of folks at the Breakthrough Institute. And there's this really active debate going on. Do we promote R&D to foster dramatic improvements in technologies or do we work on tax credits, loan guarantees, uh, cost sharing programs to help support the, the market penetration of these technologies? I, of course, am on record over and over again saying that I think deployment is absolutely critical. And I think that the, you know, the last few decades of policy, particularly the last decade of policy, has shown that this is why these costs have dropped so dramatically. I am a big believer in deployment, deployment, deployment. Yeah, you know, the one thing I have to say is I'm really glad they put out a 10-page report. I'm, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I am too. I, I'm so tired of these like 500-page reports you have to sort through. So, so that's a good thing. Um, I mean, but I agree with you, Stephen. I mean, if you look at the the conclusion of this report, um, it doesn't actually fire me up like a like a German, you know, um, you know, a, a, a energy winded, you know, program. Um, and so they sort of fall short from saying these technologies are so ready now that that we want them to meet twenty percent of our electricity needs by twenty twenty five or something. But maybe that's good because otherwise it's just going to be a lightning rod for the naysayers. And actually, you guys, I don't think we have to choose between deployment or R&D. I think we have to continue both. Why can't we continue R&D too? Because so much of this also has to do with the infusion of R&D, the way ARPA-E has been set up to solve problems. I think that's just as critical. No doubt. We, we certainly need both, Catherine. I, I mean, I agree with you. I think the reason why I care so much about deployment is because you know, Michael Schellenberger and Bjorn Lomberg have been so effective at telling people that, that the technologies that we have today are not worth deploying and that we need to focus only on R&D. I guess the other thing I would ask um, you know, both of you guys is, is do you think that this report validates DOE's role in um, – and effectiveness for these four technologies, right? I mean, you know, DOE really played the critical role, I think, in the 1970s in kickstarting this stuff out of the Arab oil crisis. But, you know, you could actually make the case that most of the cost reduction since 1995 has come from, um, you know, European deployment um, efforts as well as Japanese deployment efforts. I don't know that that was the point of the report was to you know, it's it's not like a big rah rah DOE. It's it's sort of saying, look, we've been focusing on the right things, and here are some here are four things that are having success without being too self serving. I definitely think they are implicitly making that argument, though. Yeah, they mention that these are technologies DOE has invested in, and they're trying to make implicitly make this argument that the investments they have made ha have had an impact. So. Yeah, you could definitely make the argument that Germany's strong solar policies were the reason why we saw such a ramp up in manufacturing. The Chinese investments were what dropped the cost and price of solar panels, not necessarily 
uh, U.S. policy, but clearly the DOE has had an impact, and I think they're making the argument that the policies they're developing moving forward, say an extension of the loan guarantee program, uh, grant programs, the Sunshot Initiative, uh, what ARPA-E is doing, that these will continue to have an impact and they want to ensure that these programs are sustainable going forward. So, of course, we could have a, a, a debate about which was more effective, other countries or the U.S., but very clearly they're making an argument that these policies do have an impact and that they want to continue them going forward. Right, but as a taxpayer, I just want them to be more introspective. Like, for instance, when when the president, uh, when President Clinton in 1992 abandoned his pledge of increasing CAFE standards, he put a lot of money into the Partnership for New Generation of Vehicles, which the Bush administration then carried forward. And a lot of hybrid technologies and other technologies came out of that program. I want to know whether there's a direct correlation and whether these guys learned anything from the experience of that whole investment period to the Tesla coming out and the Prius and the hybrid you know, vehicles that we have on the road today, or whether they're just making stuff up for political reasons and are not really understanding the lessons of the past. Well, Jigger, then it wouldn't be a 10-page report. It'd be a 200-page report. <laughs> yeah, and I worked on PNGV. That whole st- the PNGV story is really complicated because, yeah, they invested in the big three, and who was the one who really made it in hybrids? Toyota. Yeah. Yep, so I, they took it. All right, well, let's turn to our final piece of business. Home energy management. Uh, turns out it's not easy to get consumers interested in tracking their energy use. Five years ago, we saw startups and technology giants like Google and Microsoft attempt and mostly fail to create new dashboards and tracking tools for home energy. But homeowners didn't bite, um, largely because the systems required an upfront investment and a lot of attention for relatively small savings. But companies have learned from these failures and have developed new strategies to get into the home. Nest Labs is trying to do for the smart thermostat what Apple did for the iPod. Cable companies are offering new energy tracking tools as part of their suite of connected home offerings. And security companies are finding that they can add energy management to their tool set. GTM Research just put out an analysis of the industry, finding that at least five vendors have now passed the one million customer mark. So is this the beginning of an IT revolution in home energy management? Jigger, what do you see when you look at this space? Do you think there's a lot of promise here? I do. I do. I I think that what's different today than I think in the past is the ubiquitousness of the Internet um, and and the ability to do big data. You know, I think that when you think about the home energy systems that Microsoft and others put out in the late 90s um, and others in the last, you know, 15 years – you just didn't have this sense that your phone could really do all the features that they do today, as well as some of the other pieces that you need to make this ubiquitous. And and today you do. And so you know, I feel like you know these other companies are probably standing on the shoulders of um, the failed attempts in the past. But um, I think the timing is better right now. Catherine, what do you think about these technologies? when we think about the smart grid. Uh, Did you focus a lot on the home energy management sector when you were at the GridRise Alliance? Well, you know, we tried to because that's when Google and Microsoft were were trying to get their systems out. And um, and it's like we started too soon. We started in the wrong place too soon, and it should have been more on the grid rather than in the home. Because I think, you know, utilities were finding, oh, we're going to put smart meters, and then we're going to get in your home, and we're going to do all this stuff. And people were like, no, you're not coming in my home. I don't want an iPad from ComEd. I don't trust you guys. So it was. It became really obvious that 
we needed to instead then start focusing on the outside grid and make the grid itself smarter and more efficient. Um, but I approach this from a really personal standpoint. Like I look at this stuff and I go, you know, unless it's going to save me time, um, I don't care if my neighbor uses more or less energy than I do. I care if if I forgot to turn on my um dishwasher and I have four kids and it's really, really full. If I forgot to turn my dishwasher on, I'd love an app to be able to turn it on from my car. I mean, I think most homeowners think of of life in terms of time and what they care the most about and not that many care that much about all the details of their energy use unless it's, you know, a huge amount of money. Which was why Google and Microsoft failed in the first place. And, and some other startups. They were trying to create entirely new offerings with new dashboards and slick new hardware that the consumer had to manage and put a decent amount of time in just to get a small amount of energy savings. And, and this goes back to the skepticism of uh, new services in the home. So people were skeptical of the utilities doing it. Uh, they weren't necessarily engaging with these brand new tools that that technology companies were coming out with. So how do you get into the home? Well, you get into the home through avenues that are already there, home security systems. So Alarm.com and Vivint have made huge headway here um, because they can simply add energy management services to the security system that's already integrated into the house. Uh, Comcast has uh, made good headway in integrating uh, energy dashboarding and, and energy management tools into its Xfinity platform, which again factors in uh, media, security, and now energy. Um, and then, you know, you have these slick new technologies that consumers are really into, like the Nest thermostat, um, that people are excited about and they don't feel like is intrusive. They're, they think it's a fun new technology like any other piece of uh, consumer IT. So, we're definitely seeing these new business models emerge and often piggybacking off of existing services. And you're going to see them fundamentally disrupt, as Sonia was talking about um, earlier in the podcast, around um, you know just aggregating this uh, these thermostats into demand response and load control. You're going to see you know tremendous amount of um, innovation on that side continuing to disrupt the base utility model. So it's one of those things where these companies have figured out the consumer model and how to get them interested, but the underlying profitability of this effort really comes from the integration within the system. Well, that's right. And utilities are getting on board and starting to set up partnerships. And these outside companies are able to manage data, metering data and data f um, from how consumers interact with, say, smart thermostats in a way that the utilities can't. And it's increasing customer engagement, too. FERC came out with an analysis in 2009 looking at a business-as-usual scenario for a no-technology approach to demand response, uh, residential demand response, and found that just sending signals to consumers would probably unlock about 5% participation, which is absolutely nothing. But then when you look at these small programs that these uh, that these smart thermostat companies are putting together – you see massive customer engagement. So Nest had a couple demand response events in Texas and found that 91% of its customers were engaged and they reduced air conditioning load by 56%. So these pilot programs are still pretty small, but they are very promising and utilities are definitely realizing that they're providing services that the utilities themselves uh, couldn't provide. All right, well, let's finish up the show and tell our listeners something they don't know. Catherine, what do you have? 
Uh, okay. I'm an alum of the National Renewable Energy Lab, and that's still one of my very favorite places to work. And they just opened a new facility called the Energy Systems Integration Facility. So it's technically a DOE facility. And it is going to be the first integrated megawatt scale real-time simulation testing lab for the grid for renewables. And the coolest thing is it's going to it's, – it's dealing with terabytes of data um, with this enormous data center. So they're able to do sort of testing that is way outside the box and that's never been able to be done before. But in addition to that, they use 74% less energy – than the national average on any facilities that that do these kinds of um, tests. So their lead platinum, it's they have a, a high performance data center in there. It's the highest certified building that does all of this stuff. And I think that's so cool that it's a building that's built smart, that functions super efficiently, and yet does these amazing things for clean energy. Jigger, if you want your answer on whether DOE has an impact, I think there's a piece of it. Oh, I think DOE has an impact. It's like advertising. 50% of it works, and I don't know what 50%. Yeah, good story, so, though. Uh, that's a great story. You know, I guess, you know, on my side, my story is really from the Washington Post. Um, yesterday, the blog had um, um, an article that, uh, that Lydia DeFillis um, uh, wrote. DePillis, um, these five things need to happen before electric cars go mainstream. And I read the article and realized, oh, my God, the press really has no idea what the gating items are for electric vehicles. For them, they were just saying, oh, batteries have to be cheaper. We have to not lose our tax credits. Number four is gas prices need to stay high, get high and stay high. <laughs> like, seriously? Like, we have high <laughs> gas prices. What's wrong with you? You know? And then number five is more people need to try electric cars. I mean, it's like she isn't even like like the most basic level of knowledgeable to be able to write this blog post. And this is these are the people who are actually talking about, you know, some of our gating items for clean tech. So I just it 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 sort of just shocked me that, you know, that when I read this article. <laughs> to be fair, though, we've found that the consumer price threshold for high gas prices is higher than we thought. I mean, we're not seeing. We're, well, we're definitely seeing increased adoption of energy-efficient automobiles and definitely increased adoption of EVs. But people five years ago predicted much faster adoption at gas prices that we have today. Well, but look, I mean, you know, when you think about the solar industry, what, what caused the solar industry to take off was not a reduction of solar prices only. The real, the real uh, innovation that made it take off was no money down solar. Right. The fact that Solar City and everybody else is offering people no money down solar, that it transparently basically allowed people to move to solar. And the fact that the cost of solar is down now, such that you don't need the solar subsidies to still make the numbers work, that happened behind the curtain. The customers just see cheaper power than they had before. Electric vehicles are the same. You know, when you look at Better Place, I get the fact that Better Place failed, but where they really succeeded was they proved that business model innovation was what get what would get people out of their gasoline cars. It's not just cheaper electric batteries. All right. Well, I sense a top five EV article for you written after this show. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I was on a panel discussion last week at the Retech conference, and one of the panelists was an energy services specialist at Walmart, uh, Catherine Jenerick. And she helps procure renewables for Walmart, including developing PPAs for solar on its stores. And there was one thing that 
stood out for me in particular. And she explained that Walmart works with like 900 different utilities around the country, all with different incentive programs, regulatory regimes, and, and interconnection policies. And um, Walmart has installed a ton of solar on its stores already, but she said bluntly that she'd love to do a lot more. Um, but utilities like in North Carolina, for example, they block PPAs, and some states have arduous permitting requirements. And this all goes back to our initial conversation on America's power plan, which is it goes to show you how important it is to, to think strategically about distributed generation. So one of the biggest companies in the world, with all its legal might, uh, says that spotty regulation is preventing it from investing in more solar. And so if we want to unlock the power of this market, we, we do need to think more strategically on the local and regional level. And of course, I know it's very, much easier said than done, but it's just another lesson for us to remember as this debate unfolds. And on that note, uh, it's time to fold the show. Thanks to all of you out there for listening. And uh, don't stop listening yet because we have some important reminders. If you like this podcast, go over to iTunes and rate the show and leave a comment. If you're not yet a subscriber, you can find our RSS feed at greentechmedia.com and subscribe to this podcast in your favorite player. You can also subscribe to it on iTunes and SoundCloud, where we host the show. Um, Also, for links to the reports and stories we discussed, go on over to greentechmedia.com. We really appreciate you listening. We enjoy your comments and your feedback. So to send us any story ideas, email me at Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. We pass those around, uh, and we really do consider those. So please connect with us. Uh, Jigger Shaw, thanks very much. Have a great week. Thank you. This was fun. And Catherine Hamilton, you as well. Thanks. And if everybody could just keep crossing their fingers for the Nats getting the wild card, we'll love you even more. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be at the game at one of their last home games this, this weekend. Excellent. I will, too, with all my children. All right. Well, we'll have to connect while there. All right. Well, with Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are the Energy Gang, produced by GreenTechMedia.com. We'll catch you next time.